Section 19 of Self-Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Self-Help, with illustrations of conduct and perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 7, Industry and the Peerage, Part 2. William Petty, the founder of the House of Lansdowne, was a man of like energy and public usefulness in his day. He was the son of a clothier in humble circumstances at Romsey in Hampshire, where he was born in 1623. In his boyhood, he obtained a tolerable education at the grammar school in his native town, after which he determined to improve himself by study at the University of Caen in Normandy. Whilst there, he contrived to support himself unassisted by his father, carrying on a sort of small peddler's trade with a little stock of merchandise. Returning to England, he had himself bound apprentice to a sea captain, who drubbed him with a rope's end for the badness of his sight. He left the navy in disgust, taking to the study of medicine. When at Paris, he engaged in dissection, during which time he also drew diagrams for Hobbes, who was then writing his treatise on optics. He was reduced to such poverty that he subsisted for two or three weeks entirely on walnuts. But again he began to trade in a small way, turning an honest penny, and was enabled shortly to return to England with money in his pocket. Being of an ingenious mechanical turn, we find him taking out a patent for a letter-copying machine. He began to write upon the arts and sciences, and practised chemistry and physic with such success that his reputation shortly became considerable. Associating with men of science, the project of forming a society for its prosecution was discussed, and the first meetings of the Infant Royal Society were held at his lodgings. At Oxford he acted for a time as deputy to the anatomical professor there, who had a great repugnance to dissection. In 1652 his industry was rewarded by the appointment of physician to the army in Ireland, whither he went and whilst there he was the medical attendant of three successive Lords Lieutenant, Lambert, Fleetwood, and Henry Cromwell. Large grants of forfeited land having been awarded to the Puritan soldiery, Petty observed that the lands were very inaccurately measured, and in the midst of his many avocations he undertook to do the work himself. His appointments became so numerous and lucrative that he was charged by the envious with corruption and removed from them all, but he was again taken into favour at the Restoration. Petty was a most indefatigable contriver, inventor, and organiser of industry. One of his inventions was a double-bottomed ship to sail against wind and tide. He published treaties on dyeing, on naval philosophy, on woollen cloth manufacture, on political arithmetic, and many other subjects. He founded ironworks, opened lead mines, and commenced a pilchard fishery and a timber trade, in the midst of which he found time to take part in the discussions of the Royal Society, to which he largely contributed. He left an ample fortune to his sons, the eldest of whom was created Baron Shelbourne. His will was a curious document, singularly illustrative of his character, containing a detail of the principal events of his life and the gradual advancement of his fortune. His sentiments on pauperism are characteristic. As for legacies for the poor, said he, I am at a stand, as for beggars by trade and election, I give them nothing. As for impotence by the hand of God, the public ought to maintain them. As for those who have been bred to no calling nor estate, they should be put upon their kindred. 
wherefore I am contented that I have assisted all my poor relations, and put many into a way of getting their own bread, have laboured in public works, and by inventions have sought out real objects of charity, and I do hereby conjure all who partake of my estate, from time to time, to do the same at their peril. Nevertheless, to answer custom, and to take the sure aside, I give twenty pounds to the most wanting of the parish wherein I die. He was interred in the fine old Norman church of Romsey, the town wherein he was born a poor man's son, and on the south side of the choir is still to be seen a plain slab, with the inscription cut by an illiterate workman, Here lays Sir William Petty. Another family, ennobled by invention and trade in our own day, is that of Strutt of Belper. Their patent of nobility was virtually secured by Jedediah Strutt in 1758, when he invented his machine for making ribbed stockings, and thereby laid the foundations of a fortune which the subsequent bearers of the name have largely increased and nobly employed. The father of Jedediah was a farmer and molster, who did but little for the education of his children, yet they all prospered. Jedediah was the second son, and, when a boy, assisted his father in the work of the farm. At an early age he exhibited a taste for mechanics, and introduced several improvements in the rude agricultural implements of the period. On the death of his uncle he succeeded to a farm at Blackwell, near Normanton, long in the tenancy of the family, and shortly after he married Miss Wallet, the daughter of a Derby hosier. Having learned from his wife's brother that various unsuccessful attempts had been made to manufacture ribbed stockings, he proceeded to study the subject, with a view to effect what others had failed in accomplishing. He accordingly obtained a stocking frame, and after mastering its construction and mode of action, he proceeded to introduce new combinations, by means of which he succeeded in effecting a variation in the plain looped work of the frame, and was thereby enabled to turn out ribbed hosiery. Having secured a patent for the improved machine, he removed to Derby, and there entered largely on the manufacture of ribbed stockings, in which he was very successful. He afterwards joined Arkwright, of the merits of whose invention he fully satisfied himself, and found the means of securing his patent, as well as erecting a large cotton mill at Cranford in Derbyshire. After the expiry of the partnership with Arkwright, the Struts erected extensive cotton mills at Milford near Belper, which worthily gives its title to the present head of the family. The sons of the founder were, like their father, distinguished for their mechanical ability. Thus, William Strutt, the eldest, is said to have invented a self-acting mule, the success of which was only prevented by the mechanical skill of that day being unequal to its manufacture. Edward, the son of William, was a man of eminent mechanical genius, having early discovered the principle of suspension wheels for carriages. He had a wheelbarrow and two carts made on the principle, which were used on his farm near Belper. It may be added that the Struts have throughout been distinguished for their noble employment of the wealth which their industry and skill have brought them, that they have sought in all ways to improve the moral and social condition of the workpeople in their employment, and that they have been liberal donors in every good cause, of which the presentation, by Mr Joseph Strutt, of the beautiful park or arboretum at Derby, as a gift to the townspeople for ever, affords only one of many illustrations. The concluding words of the short address which he delivered on presenting this valuable gift are worthy of being noted and remembered. As the sun has shone brightly on me through life, 
it would be ungrateful in me not to employ a portion of the fortune I possess in promoting the welfare of those amongst whom I live, and by whose industry I have been aided in its organisation. No less industry and energy have been displayed by the many brave men, both in present and past times, who have earned the peerage by their valour on land and at sea. Not to mention the older feudal lords, whose tenure depended upon military service, and who so often led the van of the English armies in great national encounters. We may point to Nelson, St Vincent, and Leon, to Wellington, Hill, Hardinger, Clyde, and many more in recent times who have nobly earned their rank by their distinguished services. But plodding industry has far oftener worked its way to the peerage by the honourable pursuit of the legal profession than by any other. No fewer than 70 British peerages, including two dukedoms, have been founded by successful lawyers. Mansfield and Erskine were, it is true, of noble family, but the latter used to thank God that out of his own family he did not know a lord. The others were, for the most part, the sons of attorneys, grocers, clergymen, merchants and hard-working members of the middle class. Out of this profession have sprung the peerages of Howard and Cavendish, the first peers of both families having been judges, those of Aylesford, Ellenborough, Guildford, Shaftesbury, Hardick, Cardigan, Clarendon, Camden, Ellesmere, Rosslyn, and others nearer our own day, such as Tenterden, Eldon, Browham, Denman, Truro, Lyndhurst, St Leonard's, Cranworth, Campbell, and Chelmsford. Lord Lyndhurst's father was a portrait painter, and that of St Leonard's a perfumer and hairdresser in Burlington Street. Young Edward Sugden was originally an errand boy in the office of the late Mr Groom of Henrietta Street, Cavendish Square, a certified conveyancer, and it was there that the future Lord Chancellor of Ireland obtained his first notions of law. The origin of the late Lord Tenterden was perhaps the humblest of all, nor was he ashamed of it, for he felt that the industry, study and application by means of which he achieved his eminent position were entirely due to himself. It is related of him that on one occasion he took his son Charles to a little shed, then standing opposite the western front of Canterbury Cathedral, and pointing it out to him, said, Charles, you see this little shop? I have brought you here on purpose to show it you. In that shop your grandfather used to shave for a penny. That is the proudest reflection of my life. When a boy, Lord Tenterden was a singer in the cathedral, and it is a curious circumstance that his destination in life was changed by a disappointment. When he and Mr Justice Richards were going the home circuit together, they went to service in the cathedral, and on Richards commending the voice of a singing man in the choir, Lord Tenterden said, Ah, that is the only man I have ever envied, when at school in this town we were candidates for a chorister's place, and he obtained it. Not less remarkable was the rise to the same distinguished office of Lord Chief Justice, of the rugged Kenyon and the robust Ellenborough, nor was he a less notable man who recently held the same office, the astute Lord Campbell, late Lord Chancellor of England, son of a parish minister in Fifeshire. For many years he worked hard as a reporter for the press, while diligently preparing himself for the practice of his profession. It is said of him that at the beginning of his career he was accustomed to walk from county town to county town when on circuit, being as yet too poor to afford the luxury of posting. But step by step he rose slowly but surely to that eminence and distinction which ever follow a career of industry honourably and energetically pursued in the legal as in every other profession. 
There have been other illustrious instances of Lords Chancellors who have plodded up the steep of fame and honour with equal energy and success. The career of the late Lord Eldon is perhaps one of the most remarkable examples. He was the son of a Newcastle coal fitter, a mischievous rather than a studious boy, a great scapegrace at school, and the subject of many terrible thrashings, for orchard robbing was one of the favourite exploits of the future Lord Chancellor. His father first thought of putting him apprentice to a grocer, and afterwards had almost made up his mind to bring him up to his own trade of a coal fitter, but by this time his eldest son William, afterwards Lord Stowell, who had gained a scholarship at Oxford, wrote to his father, "'Send Jack up to me, I can do better for him.'" John was sent up to Oxford accordingly, where, by his brother's influence and his own application, he succeeded in obtaining a fellowship. But when at home during the vacation he was so unfortunate, or rather so fortunate as the issue proved, as to fall in love, and running across the border with his eloped bride, he married, and, as his friends thought, ruined himself for life. He had neither house nor home when he married, and had not yet earned a penny. He lost his fellowship, and at the same time shut himself out from preferment in the church, for which he had been destined. He accordingly turned his attention to the study of the law. To a friend, he wrote, I have married rashly, but it is my determination to work hard to provide for the woman I love. John Scott came up to London and took a small house in Cursitor Lane, where he settled down to the study of law. He worked with great diligence and resolution, rising at four every morning and studying till late at night, binding a wet towel around his head to keep himself awake. Too poor to study under a special pleader, he copied out three folio volumes from a manuscript collection of precedents. Long after, when Lord Chancellor, passing down Cursitor Lane one day, he said to his secretary, "'Here was my first perch. Many a time do I recollect coming down this street with sixpence in my hand to buy sprats for supper.' When at length called to the bar, he waited long for employment. His first year's earnings amounted to only nine shillings. For four years he assiduously attended the London courts and the Northern Circuit with little better success. Even in his native town, he seldom had other than pauper cases to defend. The results were indeed so discouraging that he had almost determined to relinquish his chance of London business and settle down in some provincial town as a country barrister. His brother William wrote home, "'Business is dull with poor Jack, very dull indeed.' But as he had escaped being a grocer, a coal-fitter, and a country parson, so did he also escape being a country lawyer. An opportunity at length occurred which enabled John Scott to exhibit the large legal knowledge which he had so laboriously acquired. In a case in which he was engaged, he urged a legal point against the wishes of both the attorney and client who employed him. The master of the rolls decided against him, but on an appeal to the House of Lords, Lord Thurlow reversed the decision on the very point that Scott had urged. On leaving the house that day, a solicitor tapped him on the shoulder and said, "'Young man, your bread and butter's cut for life,' and the prophecy proved a true one. Lord Mansfield used to say that he knew no interval between no business and £3,000 a year, and Scott might have told the same story, for so rapid was his progress, that in 1783, when only 32, he was appointed King's Counsel, was at the head of the Northern Circuit, and sat in Parliament for the borough of Wobley. It was in the dull but unflinching drudgery of the early part of his career that he laid the foundation of his future success. He won his spurs by perseverance, knowledge and ability diligently cultivated. He was successively appointed to the offices of Solicitor and Attorney-General, 
and rose steadily upwards to the highest office that the Crown had to bestow, that of Lord Chancellor of England, which he held for a quarter of a century. Henry Bickersteth was the son of a surgeon at Kirkby Lonsdale in Westmoreland, and was himself educated to that profession. As a student at Edinburgh, he distinguished himself by the steadiness with which he worked, and the application with which he devoted to the science of medicine. Returned to Kirkby Lonsdale, he took an active part in his father's practice, but he had no liking for the profession, and grew discontented with the obscurity of a country town. He went on, nevertheless, diligently improving himself, and engaged on speculations in the higher branches of physiology. In conformity with his own wish, his father consented to send him to Cambridge, where it was his intention to take a medical degree with the view of practising in the metropolis. Close application to his studies, however, threw him out of health, and with a view to re-establishing his strength, he accepted the appointment of travelling physician to Lord Oxford. While abroad he mastered Italian, and acquired a great admiration for Italian literature, but no greater liking for medicine than before. On the contrary, he determined to abandon it, but returning to Cambridge he took his degree, and that he worked hard may be inferred from the fact that he was senior wrangler of his year. Disappointed in his desire to enter the army, he turned to the bar, and entered a student of the inner temple. He worked as hard at law as he had done at medicine. Writing to his father, he said, Everybody says to me, you are certain of success in the end, only persevere. And though I don't well understand how this is to happen, I try to believe it as much as I can, and I shall not fail to do everything in my power. At twenty-eight he was called to the bar, and had every step in life yet to make. His means were straightened, and he lived upon the contributions of his friends. For years he studied and waited. Still no business came. He stinted himself in recreation, in clothes, and even in the necessaries of life, struggling on indefatigably through all. Writing home, he confessed that he hardly knew how he should be able to struggle on till he had fair time and opportunity to establish himself. After three years waiting, still without success, he wrote to his friends that rather than be a burden upon them longer, he was willing to give the matter up and return to Cambridge, where he was sure of support and some profit. The friends at home sent him another small remittance, and he persevered. Business gradually came in. Acquitting himself creditably in small matters, he was at length entrusted with cases of greater importance. He was a man who never missed an opportunity, nor allowed a legitimate chance of improvement to escape him. His unflinching industry soon began to tell upon his fortunes. A few more years, and he was not only enabled to do without assistance from home, but he was in a position to pay back, with interest, the debts which he had incurred. The clouds had dispersed, and the after-career of Henry Bickersteth was one of honour, of emolument, and of distinguished fame. He ended his career as master of the rolls, sitting in the House of Peers as Baron Langdale. His life affords only another illustration of the power of patience, perseverance, and conscientious working in elevating the character of the individual and crowning his labours with the most complete success. Such are a few of the distinguished men who have honourably worked their way to the highest position, and won the richest rewards of their profession, by the diligent exercise of qualities, in many respects of an ordinary character, but made potent by the force of application and industry. End of section 19